first half of the book of Exodus tells the story of ancient Israel being rescued from slavery. And when people say the Exodus story, those are the chapters they're referring to. But the book has a second half where Moses gives the Ten Commandments to Israel along with these instructions about building a sacred tent. And what links these two halves together is this crucial story. The people of Israel, they're out in the middle of nowhere. They find themselves at the foot of this mountain called Sinai. And here, God's presence comes dramatically down in the form of a violent storm cloud. Now let's stop a second and talk about this concept of God's presence because it's really important for the rest of the book. At the beginning of the Bible, in the Garden of Eden, humanity was in God's presence presence. They had this close relationship with him and it was good. But humanity rebels and the relationship is fractured and access to God's presence is lost. But God promised Abraham that he would restore his blessing to all of the nations. And that includes this restoration of relationship and access to God's presence. So here at Sinai, God's presence is now right here in front of them. And it's actually quite frightening. And he's here to invite Israel into this unique and close relationship with him. And the word used to describe this relationship is covenant. It's like a legal agreement between God and Israel. And it's unique because up till now, God hasn't asked Israel to do anything in return, just to trust him. But here on this mountain, God is going to ask Israel to do something. A lot of things, actually. He gives them a whole set of laws. that It includes the Ten Commandments. And if they obey these commandments, they will become the people who will represent God to the nations of the world. Like a priest would. Yeah, in fact, that's what God calls them to become, a kingdom of priests. And this is all connected back to the promise to Abraham that his family would become a blessing to the nations. Okay, but obeying these laws is going to be difficult because... There's a lot of them, and they set a really high standard. Though if you think about it, I mean, of anybody in the world who should be able to do it, I mean, it's these people who experienced firsthand God's grace and his power when he rescued them from slavery. And and they agree to obey the terms, but then they refuse to go into God's presence because it's, well, it's still a bit frightening. And since the people won't go up, Moses goes up to the mountain by himself to meet with God. But God still wants to be with all of his people. And so he says, okay, if the people won't come up here to me, I'll come down off this mountain to be with you all. And that's why he orders Moses to build this elaborate tent as a place where God's presence can be among his people. And that's why the next thing we get is seven chapters of extremely detailed architectural blueprints for this tent. It's really, really really long. But every detail is important and has some kind of symbolic value. For example, there's all this Garden of Eden imagery inside the tent. And it's to remind you that when you're in the tent, you are in God's presence. Then we get another six chapters describing how they built the tent, which is really just repeating the same blueprints word for word. Now let's back up because before the tent is finished, there's this super important story. Moses is coming off the mountain with the Ten Commandments and the blueprints in his hands, and he finds Israel breaking the first two commands of the covenant. Don't have any other gods before me and don't worship idol statues. Right, and so here we are, immediately after agreeing to the covenant, they're throwing this ritual party, they're worshiping an idol. And so God says to Moses, you know what, this is, this is not gonna work. I should just wipe these people out and start over with you. But Moses reminds God of his promise to Abraham and pleads with God to spare them, which is a really weird conversation. Why would God need to be reminded of something? Yeah, it does seem odd, but this dialogue is inviting us into God's experience of grief and pain due to Israel's actions, and he really could walk away. But instead, this God chooses faithfulness to his own promises, even though he knows it's going to cost him. 
So we come to the end of the book. The tabernacle's built, God's presence comes down off the mountain to fill it, and in the final scene, Moses goes to enter the tabernacle to be in God's presence. But he can't. He's actually not able to go inside, and that's how the book ends. Why can't he go in? That was the whole point. So when Israel worshipped the golden calf, it was like a slap in the face to God's faithfulness. And so Moses can't just waltz into the tent like everything's just fine. There's a deeper problem still in this relationship. Will they ever be able to fix the relationship and go into God's presence? Well, that's what the next book, Leviticus, is all about. He broke into a home to, to steal things. And as he gets started, he hears a voice. The voice says, Jesus is watching you. Now, he thought that he was just imagining it, so he continued looking for things to take, but then he heard it again. Jesus is watching you. He takes his flashlight, he sweeps it through the room, and he doesn't see anyone. All he sees is this birdcage with a parrot inside of it. He asks the parrot, are you talking to me? The parrot says, yes. He asks the parrot, what's your name? The parrot says, Moses. The burglar chuckles. What kind of people name a parrot Moses? The parrot responds, same kind of people who name their pit bull Jesus. <laughs> you know, in that story, Moses and Jesus are partners. But in the real story, the story of God and his people, Moses and Jesus are on the same team also. Now, I know that many of you know their stories quite well. Some of you don't, and that's okay. That's part of why we come together and worship, to, to learn about God, about his story, about his love for his people. Each time I teach, I am reminded that the audience is made up of people all across that continuum of Bible knowledge. There was a pastor who was telling about a time when his family was living in Chicago. And they'd been very intentional about getting to know their neighbors. They wanted to know them so that they could have a, an influence in their lives. And there was a family that was just a few doors down from them that they got particularly close to. It was one of those young, cool families that was new to the neighborhood. And they began to spend quite a bit of time together. They'd have backyard barbecues, things like that. And the pastor kept inviting the father from this family to go golfing with him. Each time he invited him, the father, the, the neighbor, turned him down. Now, the pastor happened to be a, a really good golfer, and he knew that that could be intimidating for people. But he had heard that this neighbor was a good golfer also, so he, he figured that couldn't be the reason why. Well, finally, the neighbor said yes. Finally, the neighbor said yes to golfing. They, they set the time, and it's Saturday morning, and they're driving together to the golf course. Neighbor says there's something I need to get out in the open before we get to the golf course. The reason why I've been turning you down to go golfing is because I'm intimidated. Now, I'm, I'm not intimidated by your golf game. I'm intimidated by your Bible knowledge. You see, I'm a college graduate. I consider myself to be fairly intelligent. But when it comes to the Bible, I, I'm embarrassed by how little I know. I don't want to spend four hours in the golf cart with you proving the level of my ignorance. There, I've said it. Do you still want to go golfing with me? Pastor smiled and said, of course I do. I've been looking forward to this morning for a long time. I'm, I'm glad we finally get to play. But I'm glad that you were able to get that off of your chest. The neighbor smiled. He, he seemed to, to 
become at ease, and he continued talking. He said, I, I need to let you know just how bad it really is. See, I, I know that Moses and Jesus are characters in the Bible, but I've got no idea who came first or, or if perhaps they lived at the same time. Pastor smiled and thought to himself, man, this guy really doesn't know much about the Bible. You know, it's a good question for us to start with this morning. Who came first, Moses or Jesus? I'd love it if you would just call out, who came first, Moses or Jesus? Well done. But in a real way, both answers are correct. Because you might think of, of Moses and Jesus, and, and Jesus when he came to earth and put on human flesh and walked amongst us for, for 33 years. And if that's the case, then, then he was coming about 1,400 years after Moses had lived. But as you know, that's not the whole story, right? That's not the whole story because Jesus is God. And he has existed from the very beginning. In fact, it was Jesus along with the Father and the Holy Spirit who, who created the heavens and the earth. They created it all. And it's, it was Jesus and the Father and the Son who, who uh, had this great plan at the beginning. We're reminded, as Tim told us, in the beginning was the Word. And John is talking about Jesus as the Word here, the, the living Word. And he, the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. See, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit had this great vision at creation. They had this passion that's important for us to understand. It was their great desire to create all that is, the heavens and the earth, the, the sun, the moon, the stars, the land, the sea, the plants, the animals, and Adam and Eve, and to come down and be with Adam and Eve in that garden. That was their great passion. That was their great desire. And Adam and Eve rejected that. And so Adam and Eve were escorted out of the garden, and God returned up there. And that's where many people today picture God being. He's, he's up there. He went up there, and he's stayed up there. The scripture is very clear. God is not an up there, distant kind of God. God is a down here with us kind of God. In fact, there are five times in Scripture where we're told that God came down to be with us. The first time was at creation, where God was with Adam and Eve in the, the garden. It, it tells us that God took walks with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. The second time is when God came down to be with Moses and with the nation of Israel. We're going to look at that together today. The third time is at the incarnation, when Jesus, the Son of God, came down, put on human flesh, and walked and lived amongst us. We called him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The fourth time is at the birth of the church, when God came down to live not in a, a temple made with stone, but in a temple made with flesh. He came down to live within his people through his spirit. And the fifth time will be at the end of time. In the book of Revelation, where it tells us that God will create a new heaven and a new earth. That he'll recreate the garden, only this time it will be a garden city. And God will live with his people forever and ever. His people who are his through faith in Jesus Christ. This is incredibly important for us to understand. God is not an up there distant God. God is a down here. 
He wants to be near you. That's the kind of God we worship. That's his great desire to be with us. We're in the midst of a sermon series that's called The Story. We're spending 31 weeks together walking through the story of God and his people and, and his great love and redemptive plan for us. And over the course of 31 weeks, we are going to be reading 70% of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. And it's a glorious thing when a congregation walks together through God's Word. If you haven't picked up a copy of the story, I encourage you after worship, go to Guest Central and get one for yourself. If you are new with us this morning, you're joining us right at the beginning. We are in week five, and we will be running for the next 26 weeks, running through God's story, getting that picture of God's redemptive purposes, God's love, God's power, and how we fit into God's story. Make sure that you're going week by week with us through the story. Now, last week, we saw God bringing his people, Israel, out of slavery in Egypt. We saw him send the ten plagues. We saw Pharaoh say, go, and Moses led the people of Israel out of Egypt towards the promised land. As we begin chapter 5, we today are going to be looking at the fact that now it's time for the people to inherit that land that God had promised to Abraham 645 years previously. They are entering into that Sinai Peninsula, which is the desert, and they're headed northeast towards Canaan, which is the promised land. God says to Moses about three months into this desert experience, I'm going to come down. I want to be with you. I want to be with the, the nation of Israel. I want to be right in the center of your camp. I want to be right in the center of your lives. Now, when God's presence is with us, we experience blessing and power and protection and guidance. When God's presence is with us, we experience the favor of God on our side. But God says that if I'm going to come down, if I'm going to be there with you, there are three things that we need to get in place. First of all, if I come down, I'm going to need a place to stay. In Exodus chapter 25, it says, then have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. God gives Moses very specific instructions for how this tent called the tabernacle is to be set up. Now that word tabernacle is a Hebrew word which literally means dwelling. God gives specific instructions for what it's supposed to be like, all the way down to what kind of furniture, where to place it, what kind of fabrics to use. And it's pointing forward to a time 1,400 years later when Jesus will come. God comes down and his dwelling is in this, this tabernacle right in the center of Israel's camp. Now God also told Moses he needed to create, to, to build a room in the back of the, the tabernacle. It's to be sectioned off using a very heavy curtain, a very tall and heavy curtain. It's to be called the Holy of Holies. That's where God is going to dwell. And no one is to enter into that Holy of Holies except for the high priest and he can only enter in one day a year when he brings that sacrifice for the forgiveness of the sins of the people. It's important for us to understand that at this time, God is dwelling with his people, but his people don't have direct access to him. Why is that? Because their sin hasn't been dealt with. It hasn't been paid for. It hasn't been atoned for. They haven't been made right with God yet. 
See, people can't be in community with God until their sin is taken care of. And so that's why the, the second thing that God says has to take place is this. Sin must be atoned for. Now this is a section of scripture where we get to the book of Leviticus, which contains some things that, some things that seem a bit odd to us. The primary purpose of the book of Leviticus is to lay out the exact requirement for those sacrifices which are made for the forgiveness of sins, asking God to forgive and, and atone for our sins. This is, this is a, a book filled with nuance, with intricacy about the manner in which these sacrifices must be made. They point forward to the, the perfection that's to come 1,400 years later when Jesus arrives. In order for us to be in community with God, that sin nature which has been handed down from Adam and Eve must be dealt with. Sins must be atoned for. And so at this time, the, the sacrificial system is instituted. Now, there had been instances where sacrifices had been made previously, but now that God is going to permanently dwell with his people, the sin, sins must be atoned for constantly. Sins must be atoned for constantly. God is going to dwell with his people, right? And so that sacrificial system is instituted. Now, here's the question. If sins are being atoned for through the shedding of the blood of these animals, why is God continuing to quarantine himself in this back room called the Holy of Holies, right? Why is God continuing to be there? The people of Israel have God's presence with them, and yet they do not have direct access to him. Why is that? Well, you see this explained in the New Testament book of Hebrews, when it says the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. God was instituting something symbolic here. Something that gave the people the opportunity to, to, to share their faith, to confess their faith and, and their repentance for their sins. But the truth is, in reality, that, that the, even the perfect blood of an unblemished lamb or, or a bull cannot take away the sin of the people. These sacrifices are a picture of what's to come later in Christ. And that's why during the time of Moses and Israel, God's presence is with them, but they don't have direct access to him. This leads to the third thing that God says needs to be in place. If I'm going to come down, there have to be guidelines for how we treat each other. In God's perfect community, everyone is treated with respect and honor and dignity all the time. But because of this sin virus that runs through our veins, we can't help ourselves. One day we are treating people with, with great affection, with great love. We're blessing the people in our lives, and, and the next day we're trashing them. It's like the two guys who met for lunch one day. One guy asked the other, hey, how are things going with your wife? The other guy said, well, last night she came crawling to me on her hands and knees. The other guy was surprised and said, well, what did she say? She said, come out from under that bed and fight like a man. 
God says in our families, we can't treat each other like that anymore. We, we can't live dysfunctional lives like that. And so God gives us guidelines on how to treat him and how to treat each other. And we call those guidelines the Ten Commandments. Jesus said that these Ten Commandments can be summed up in, in just two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Jesus is saying that the, the Ten Commandments, will, each one will either instruct you on how to, to relate to God or how to relate to each other. The first four commandments deal with our relationship with God. The last six deal with our relationship with each other. Now Moses very much valued the presence of God with us. It was something incredibly important because he knows that when, the God, when God's presence is with us, we experience great blessing. And Moses wanted that blessing for himself, but he also wanted that blessing for the people that he was leading. Moms and dads, I know that you want that blessing for yourself, but you also want that blessing for the children that you lead. When God's presence is with us, that presence gives us something that we can't find ourselves. Now, the story of, of the giving of the law tells us that Moses was up on that mountain with God, getting these three things in place. But it was taking a long time. The people of Israel were down at the base of the mountain. They were wondering what was going on. Why was Moses gone for so long? When was he coming back? Is he coming back? Now, I don't know if they just got impatient. I don't know if, if they were afraid. I don't know if they were just idiots. But they started taking their jewelry off and throwing it into the furnace. And like Aaron tried to explain, out popped a golden calf. And they began to worship this golden calf. God sees what the people are doing. And he taps Moses on the shoulder and says, see what they're doing? You can't, haven't even headed down the mountain yet, and they've already broken the first two of the commandments that I'm giving you. I'm done with them. You can take them to the promised land, but I'm not going with you. At this point, Moses engages in some dangerous dialogue with God. He says, wait a minute, God, you can't do that. You promised Abraham 645 years ago that you would take us to the promised land. You've got to go with us. Can you imagine talking to God like that? The Bible tells us that God relented, that he backed down, that he, he listened to Moses, and he decided, yes, I'm going to go with him. Now, he was not adopting the will of Moses in this. Now, Moses had reminded God of his will. And that's a powerful reminder to us today that if we want God to answer our prayers, then one of the things that we can do is recite back to him those unconditional promises that he makes to us in his word. After this, this part of the conversation, God says to Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? In other words, God, I'd rather be in the wilderness with you than in the promised land without you. I'd rather be in the wilderness with you than in the promised land without you. We need to have the same attitude as Moses. 
where God's presence is, is a thing that we want more than anything else in the world. Because when God's presence is with us, we experience blessing, guidance, protection. We experience his favor through his presence. You know, this morning, God is saying the same thing to us that he said to Moses all those years ago. He says, I want to be with you. I want to be with you. But if I'm going to come and be with you, there's some things that need to be in place. First of all, I'm going to need a place to stay. Now, I'm not going to live in a, a temple made with stone. I want to live in a different kind of temple, a kind of temple that wears tennis shoes and sandals. I want my spirit to reside right within you. But if that's going to happen, then, then your sin needs to be dealt with. Your sin needs to be atoned for. We're not going to do animal sacrifices anymore. No, it's, it's the sacrifice of my son, Jesus Christ. And since his blood is powerful enough to actually forgive your sins, then I don't need to hide out in this, this quarantined holy of holies. In fact, that, that curtain has been torn from top to bottom. I'm not there anymore. Now I get to reside in, in those whose sins have been atoned for. That means that 24 7 middle of the day, middle of the night, you have access to God, right? You can cry out to God, and you don't have to go through a high priest anymore. You don't have to go through a pastor anymore. You don't have to call up Pastor Don, and you can call him during the night and call me during the day, but you don't have to call us <laughs> to have access to God. We are a priesthood of all believers, and we have access to God 24-7. Now, I know that some of you might be hearing this for the very first time. You're thinking, this is something that's attractive to me. I want this. I want to have God's presence with me. I want to have forgiveness of sins. If you have never asked God to forgive your sins, if you have never asked him to, to be your leader, to be your Lord and Savior, that means you're not yet a Christian and you don't have God's presence within you. But that's something that can change today. It's something that can change this morning. Ask God to forgive your sins. Ask him to, to lead you in your life. And when that happens, God will send his Holy Spirit to dwell within you. And you will experience the blessing and the favor of God. Then a third thing. God says, if I'm going to come and do, do life with you, then we need to have some guidelines on how you're going to treat me and how you're going to treat others. You don't have to follow these guidelines perfectly in order to, for us to have a relationship. That was never the deal. Just get into my word. Grow in your understanding of my will for your life. And let's do life together. It's a question that we, we need to ask ourselves today. Do we value the presence of God in our life? Do we want to do that kind of life? Do we want to say to God, God, I don't want to go anywhere without you. God, I, I can't face this cancer without, without your presence. Be with me. God, I can't face the loss of my spouse without your presence in my life. God, I can't beat this addiction without your power and your presence with me. God, I, I need you to go to work with me tomorrow. I need your help. God, I'm lost. I don't know where to go. Show me the next step that I should take. Let me leave you this morning with the words of, of Moses the parrot. Jesus is watching you. Now, he's not watching you because he wants to catch you making a mistake. He's not watching you because he wants to, to punish you. He's watching you because he loves you. 
because he wants to protect you, because he wants to, to bless you. I also want to leave you with the words of Moses the prophet, who after the, this conversation that he's been having with God has the audacity to pray, God, show me your glory. Send down your presence. I want to see your face. God says to Moses, you can't handle that. No one can see my face and live, but this is what I'll do because I'm so pleased with you. I'm going to place you in the cleft of a rock. I want you to get in this cleft of the rock, and I'm going to pass by. And as I pass by, I'm going to put my hand over the cleft so that you don't see my face, but as I pass by, I'll pull my hand back so that you can see the back of me. That's what happened. God passed by, and Moses saw God with his own eyes. The Bible tells us that when Moses came down from that mountain, his face was radiant. Can you imagine experiencing the presence of God in that way? That needs to be our prayer today as well. God, show me your glory. Send down your presence. I want to see your face. Let's pray. How glorious, Lord. How glorious is your presence. How marvelous it is to do life with you. And so, Lord, we thank you. We thank you and we praise you that you are a God who is not distant. You are a God who is not up there. You are a God who comes down here, who wants to do life with us, who wants to walk with us and talk with us. God who wants to be with us. Lord, we want to be with you every moment of every day. Show us your presence. Show us your glory. Show us your face. We want to do life with you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.